0: I want my mummy
1: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network
2: Ancient tools and burials Plants and seeds, Neanderthals All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology But we don't do dinosaurs
3: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast, episode 15. I'm your host, Sarah Head, with my co-host, Ken Fader, and today we're talking about a variety of topics. We're starting off with a rundown of what Ken's been doing with this summer, then we're going to talk about the Indiana mummy, and then we're going to finish up with an actual controversy in actual archaeology. Who was here first, Clovis or somebody else? So get ready to think critically. Funny,
2: beady blokes, you will see, are a staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs.
3: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. I am your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken.
0: Hi Sarah, how are you? I'm good. How's it going up there? It's going great. We're having a really nice summer, beautiful weather. Um, amazingly not super humid uh, for, for New England this time of year, so it's all good.
3: I mean, you had like great weather because it has been... So I just moved, and when I moved, I went and did a project down in Virginia. And The two weeks that the project went, the lowest temperature was 100 degrees after heat index. No,
0: I don't like that. Um, yeah, uh, I was miserable. <laughs> I'd vote against that. I would complain to whoever's in charge of the weather. You know, the yeah, meteorologists right? say, yeah, no, uh-uh, this is not good weather for archaeology. Well, I always My love that either. That around here, the funny thing is the middle of the summer, uh, days that are, it's really going to be hot, it's really going to be humid, um, the mosquito count is enormously high, the pollen count is high, and, the, and the, <laughs> the meteorologists will say, you know what, today's a good day to stay indoors. And they're saying that as I'm driving into the field with a bunch of right. of archaeology students saying, yeah, well, if you could do archaeology indoors, that would be a good suggestion. But since you can't, uh, we're going to have to gut it out, and we always do.
3: I have some friends doing a Phase 3 out in Arkansas, and uh, I guess it's they're, they're working for a really great company, apparently. the It got so hot, what, last week was it, that they're uh, – the company went out and bought everyone one of those big excavation tents oh, is that right? to put over their units and then bought them their they're like these cool tech towels. They're made out of some kind of like smart fabric that you get it wet and then you snap it. I have and it actually I've heard of keeps that keeps
0: you cool Yeah I've heard of so that. So they
3: bought everyone a towel and, and just for them to keep. <laughs> like they don't want them back.
0: And well yeah after a bunch of archaeologists awesome. sweated into that towel you wouldn't want it back either.
3: No, no, no! You don't want that thing back. That's that's not water that you're getting cooled off by anymore.
0: Yeah, but now they're making they're making shirts out of that material and hats out of yeah. that material. So it's I don't know. I'm a little bit skeptical as I am about everything about <laughs> clothing that's going to keep you cool. But uh, I don't know. Let's...
3: But it makes you want to try it though, doesn't it? Yeah, like, right. eh, I, can, I can eat forty bucks for one shirt and if I like it. I'll get another one. If not, eh, you know. Uh-huh. But, so, tell us about, tell us about your field school
0: that you just finished up. So, you know, anybody who's listening to this, you've heard us from week to week, but we had a bunch of shows that were kind of stockpiled, and so I've been gone for, I guess, four or five weeks, so we, Sarah and I haven't spoken four or five weeks, because I was in the middle of my archaeology field school. We are, this is the third season we're back at a site in northwestern Connecticut um, we have radiocarbon dates real clear of just shy of 3,000 years ago, 2,850, something like that. And the site is, in fact, it's it's not an occupation site where we've been excavating. It's an industrial site. It's a site where the native um, inhabitants of northwestern Connecticut quarried uh, soapstone. Uh, Sarah, do you have, out in the Midwest, is soapstone a big deal prehistorically?
3: Um. It is a big deal because it's rare. Uh, we don't get a lot of soapstone tools or uh, points or anything like that, Like not like you guys are getting. We get soapstone figurines and we get uh, soapstone pipes occasionally, uh-huh. but it's not – we have pottery. So it it's not on the scale that you guys are finding yeah. out.
0: See that's the cool thing is here that that ceramic technology doesn't move into southern New England until about 3000 years ago give or take. And there's and you know, we've talked about how do archaeologists know if if a, a technology is indigenous and developed in place or if it came in from the outside. And the same the same kind of skeptical approach we use to to discuss whether or not we think ancient Egyptians Inspired the Olmec, or or a- extraterrestrial aliens, or Atlanteans, um, inspired the Egyptians. That same kind of skepticism we apply when somebody says, "Well, we've got pottery in the, in, here in southern New England. Where did it come from? Did it was it an, uh, an entirely indigenous development, or did it come in from the outside?" And here the evidence is really clear. Uh, we don't see f- the halting steps of the development of pottery technology here, it it arrives, bam, 3,000 years ago, full blown. Huh. And when you look at the t- the style of it, it almost certainly comes from the West and from the South. So the, the earliest pottery in Connecticut is called Vinette, Vinette One, and it's a thick-bodied, conical base, kind of, it's kind of ugly stuff. It's not, of course, it's not glazed. It's not made on a wheel. It's not painted. It's a very plain um, ceramic type.
3: So you don't you don't even get like uh, ochre gray, gray like uh, red paint on nothing. it or anything. There's
0: nothing because
3: we get that now, here every
0: once in a while. This well, this stuff is it's just basically whatever the color of the clay when you fire it. That's that's what you got. Now they do huh. they do um, the the ancient folks did add designs and some of it is actually pretty sophisticated, pretty beautiful stuff. With they would Im- they would impress say twine into the clay when the clay was still. Soft, was still malleable, and that would give a corrugated texture to the pots. Um when it was let or when it's again, when it's really soft, they would impress designs, push designs, into the the actual wet clay and that would um, add some some element of design to it. Um, and also when it was leather hard before firing they would incise the pots with with dots or with with parallel lines or wavy lines And so you do get some especially up towards the top of the pot the collar or yeah. the rim you get those that kind of design but that shows up full blown from the west and south, about 3,000 years ago. Before that, um, along with making um, vessels out of wood or bark or or fabric or um, um, uh, woven stuff, they did use this soft rock called soapstone or steatite. Um, it's a soft metamorphic rock. And the, the cool thing about it is that you know, when you, if, if the listeners are familiar with the Mohs hardness scale, which is like a 19th century scale that was developed by this um, a geologist whose name was Moh, M-O-H, who said, look, if, if one material can scratch another, the material that can scratch it is harder than the material that can be scratched. And if you take a whole bunch of materials and, and you know, scratch each one, try to scratch the other, you can come up with, with this kind of linear scale where diamond is a 10. That's the hardest thing, can't scratch a diamond with anything. And then there's nine and a half and nine and eight, depending on what can scratch, um, what, what's, what gets scratched by what materials. Um, your fingernail is probably around a two on the Mohs hardness scale, and soapstone is about a one and a half. So you literally can scratch this rock with your fingernail. And anything that's harder, like well, the materials we find at the site, a lot of it's the, the picks, the tools made for quarrying the stone, are made out of quartzite. And quartzite is, has, on the Mohs scale is like a seven and a half. So it's very, very easy to carve out blanks of chunks of soapstone from this, this large boulder. And that's what we've got here at this site. Um, and anyway, the, the cool thing is that... that Soapstone is available, it's not ubiquitous, right? You can't find it everywhere. It's actually in very limited concentrations in in a few areas in Southern New England. And wherever the natives found that stuff, um, those who lived in the area monopolized it and they were able to trade either the soapstone as blanks or as finished objects all all over the place. So we find soapstone bowls that date to a little before 3000 years ago throughout much of southern New England, but you only have the sources in a very limited number of places. And here in Northwestern Connecticut, we have a couple of really good soapstone sources. Now the 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 large chunk of soapstone, and it's it appears to be a glacial erratic, so it was plucked from somewhere else and pushed uh-huh. south. This large piece has you know it it's got remnants of half finished bowl forms across the face of this piece of this piece of rock. So when you look at it it really was amazing when when um, the place was first discovered it was entirely the, the rock was entirely covered with soil and only a couple of the very high points were picking were peeking up out of the, the, the forest soil and it just looked like two boulders. And then as we, we saw it was soapstone and as we began excavating it, we realized those two boulders were in fact part of a bigger rock. They were the very tops and the exposed tops of what was a much larger piece of soapstone. And we call them unharvested bowls. And it's just – Sarah it just will, just knocks my socks off every time I look at it that you can actually cease a moment frozen in time from 3,000 years ago as these bowl forms were being uh, produced on the, the core, on the source, as these so the, these quarriers these, were, were doing it.
3: These bowl forms, were they – Were they hollowing the bowl out first? No, huh?
0: That's the thing is, is that in most cases, what they're doing is they are, they're, they are shaping the bowl form upside down. So what Uh, you got is the top is rounded and the, these, these things, when they get really close to removal of the bowl, it looks like a mushroom where the, the stem of the mushroom is, is that's, that's all that's, that's attaching the bowl form to the source itself. And then what they would do is they would drill through that stem, and we have actual drill marks, or and nice. then pry that piece off. Then you flip it right side up where now the rounded part, which before was the top, is now the bottom. And then they hollowed out the bowl and carved um, handles. Very often there are lugs or handles carved onto the sides of it. And in fact, this, this year we actually found – in the in the stuff that that the quarriers threw away, we found a, what amounts to about half of of a, of of a finished bowl, and it's beautiful piece of work, and you still nice. it still has one of the lugs on it. And the, the the other interesting thing about the site is that the site dates to about the very tail end of the use of soapstone, and I have this 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 image right, this scenario in which these guys are working hard at isolating these bowl forms, removing them from the the soapstone, carving them out, and then trading them. And in the middle of this, so they're still in the middle, they still have left some of these bowl forms are in place. Somebody walks through the forest with a clay pot and says, "Uh, you know what, you guys, we don't need this stuff anymore. Clay is everywhere. So it's really cool how a a technology that required a material that's available in only very discrete locations is replaced by a technology um, that has its disadvantages. To be sure, clay pots break much more readily than soapstone. You have to fire clay pots. You don't have to fire soapstone, obviously. But clay... Just about anywhere you dig a hole in southern New England along a stream or river, you find clay. So you no longer have to maintain these trading networks to get some of that rare soapstone because you don't need it anymore. Because just imagine these guys going to all this work and having this wonderful um, resource that everybody else wants. And so you're able to trade. And now, guess what? We don't need you anymore. We don't need that resource anymore.
3: And I would assume that the clay, or not the clay, the uh, soapstone harvesting would be very, very labor-intensive. It's very, yeah, it's labor-intensive compared intensive, to sure. compared to you know pot manufacturing, which is not that difficult. I mean, right. There are steps you have to go through to get a finished pot, but. They're not nearly as labor intensive as well, I mean, yeah. carving the rock out, carving exactly.
0: the bowl. Yeah, but, but, I'm
3: sure it's not as pretty, though. Yeah,
0: but so, but so, so it's a multi step process, right? First, you gotta find the stuff, and then you gotta carve out or isolate lozenges. Of, of the soapstone, then you gotta remove it. Anywhere along this, this this process, you can run into irregularities or impurities in soapstone, so it breaks. Um, you have to pull it out, and then you gotta go through this long process of carving them out. Um, I imagine that when people, I think the big advantage of, of ceramics is that the raw material is, that's not an issue. You can find that raw material anywhere. And clay is also, it's, it's I, from for my money, it's a much more creative medium. There's a lot more you can do with clay to make something that that distinguishes your work from anybody else's work. Where and it's a lot more forgiving. Like yeah. if you
3: mess up at the early stages of it, you can just mush it all back down and start you over it, yeah. with, with the soapstone bowls. If you screw up early on, I mean, you're probably done with that bowl. I mean, that's probably why you have that really nice bowl that's, you know, that one that you said you right. found that was like half of it. It's probably had an impurity or a fracture. And, you know, if they've gone through that much effort and then there's that one impurity running right through it and it just pops, it, it, it. pops it in two. I mean, that had to be
0: really frustrating. Yeah. There for are some exam- There are some examples in southern New England of soapstone bowls that broke. And, well, you could no longer use them for liquid, to hold liquids, but you could use them to hold seeds or nuts. And so what they did is they drilled holes and kind of sewed the pieces back together again. So you nice. still could, you know, with all that work, you might as well, you know, apply a little adaptive reuse to the material. So it's been, it's That's been, good, really you know, the Japanese do that. They're, the early Japanese and
3: Chinese did that, Is that though, right? with their, yeah, with their broken potteries and stuff. They would, um, if something were to break, they would drill little tiny holes mm-hmm. in it and then, uh, sure. well, they would do one of two things. They'd either stitch it back together. Or uh, with wire, or they would take uh, gold or lead or silver and pour uh-huh. it into the cracks and reset it with a metal. And it's made some very pretty uh, pieces of pottery and stuff, mm-hmm. because you, you have that contrast then at that point. Sure, sure. But, I mean, that's way more advanced than, well, not terribly, actually. The metallurgy part, yeah, but beyond yeah, that. So... So you guys are looking at the quarry site.
0: Uh-huh. Right.
3: And you don't have any, like, is there an occupational
0: well, here's, site that's nearby? Here's the cool, here's the cool part. Um, back in the um, late 1940s, early 1950s, Yale University in Cairn, Connecticut, did an excavation that is maybe 75 feet away from the quarry. It's a rock nice. shelter, all right, And the rock shelter... Had clear signs of occupation and clear signs of um, the carving of soapstone bowls. So how cool oh. is that? So yeah. so th- there's th- there's the the soil at the bottom of the rock shelter is all full of soapstone dust. So it has that greasy kind of icky feel to it. Um, yeah. There are actual tools up in the rock shelter for carving bowls. There was at least one complete bowl and broken pieces of bowls, and When they excavated that, the Yaleys thought that the rock shelter itself was the quarry and that maybe the the, this rock overhang had been expanded as the, the folks living there were carving out the soapstone. Problem was there's no soapstone seam in the rock. But they didn't know where the where they knew it had to be close. They figured it was the rock shelter itself, but but they never apparently walked down the hill. Or maybe when they were there, that the the pieces of soapstone were completely covered over. I I, yeah. I told my students that where we were digging the the quarry there, that that was the latrine for the Yale students. So that got oh. we got a big charge out of that. But so was
3: it literal Was it actually
0: the latrine? I don't for them? think so. But you, know, yeah. you, yeah, you, never you know. know, you have to lie to people every once in a while. So so <laughs> I'm pretty sure that 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 rock shelter that was the occupation. That's where. And up there, you know, there, there's it, they're not just quarriers. They're they're hunting. There's there's animal bones. There's evidence of their hearths up there. So that's where they're 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 living, and the quarriers are then coming down and quarrying the stone. The other thing that's really cool that we only discovered in two thousand thirteen is that we, we did a pedestrian survey across the, this forest, and I'm sure you've done lots of pedestrian surveys, and it's always like a real challenge in a forest because you've got trees and and yeah. boulders on the surface. But what we found was the area um it's acres around the the where the soapstone quarry itself was located. There are these large quartzite boulders, most mm-hmm. of which show clear signs of chipping. And in some of the cases you even find the flakes of quartzite like like stockpiled in and around these quartz boulders that we excavated. And huh. then you find the materials, the tools that were used to quarry the soapstone made out of those quartz tools. And the tools used to carve out the bowls, to hollow them out, made from a, a quart, mostly quartzite. Um, so it's kind of cool. I'm surprised that they're tool making with quartzite anyway
3: because I've seen quartz points and, and – I just think they're it's, it's
0: Well, it's really tough. The advantage we have here is that these guys knew exactly what they were doing. And they they ignored quartzite boulders that were really coarse. It was a coarse uh-huh. um, quartzite where the crystals were very large. And they found beautiful, very fine-grained quartzite and they use that almost exclusively and some of these boulders are huge and uh, the hammerstones they were using you can see, you can see the bulbs of percussion you can see the faceting on the, the cores and a, a student of mine Matt Sweeten who now is in fact a graduate student of of Bruce Bradley in England and Matt um, Actually, found some ethno stuff. I believe it was from New Guinea. Of a, again, a process of taking large quartzite boulders that are in situ, in place, and the native people taking hammer stones that weigh 20 or 30 pounds and battering the hell out of these boulders to remove large chunks of quartzite, which they then work down into tools. So, well,
3: yeah, you got to get it off there
0: somehow. Very, very cool stuff. You know, I do yeah. experimental archaeology, man, but I don't want a hammerstone to be much bigger than one I can hold in my hand and 20 or 30 pounds. I'm going to get tired in yeah. a hurry. But so, well, and you're
3: going to have to put that above
0: your head and oh, bring it. I
3: mean, I can see what they were trying to oh, do. Yeah, right? yeah. And obviously it
0: worked. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's cool stuff. Very, very cool stuff.
3: So is there anything uh, particular you want to tell about your findings this summer, or are you guys still working through the data? Yeah,
0: we are absolutely still working through the data. We have lots and lots. What we we understand now is that um, there were at least a couple of different ways, depending on the quality of the soapstone, on this one large boulder. That's about 12 feet long and about 5 feet wide. Um so some of the the finer stuff they were they were actually carving, but some of the the stuff where it's a little bit blockier, they were removing it in chunks by percussion. And you can see that pretty clearly. We've we've we think we've reached the bottom of we're we're sort of working down under it. And what it looks like is that we have just now gotten to the level where the quarriers were standing. Because now, this was all this was all buried when we got there, but we've yeah. got a level where okay, that's where all the soapstone dust is, and you can even look under the boulder. So you, we're starting to 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 um, it's there's kind of a keel at the bottom of it, so it, it's balanced. I'm, I used to joke that my God, we get two of the bigger students on either side, we can get the thing rocking, but that's not going to happen. But you can see even under it, you can see all the peck marks from the um, the 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 attempt to to smooth out the surface before they started carving out bowls. So we've got that, we have an area where where soapstone was stockpiled, a literal pile of soapstone that was <laughs> be removed from the core the quarry that we think the next thing would have been to bring it up to the the rock shelter, the rock shelter. where that that's nice. most of the fi- the finish work was done up there, not at the quarry itself. And we've got we have one tip of the spear point and i can't tell you what style it is because i don't have the base so no no notion of that uh, it's a, a hornfels, so it's a flint like material and mm-hmm. there was enough charcoal we have we recovered a bunch more charcoal this time as well and we're going to try to get some multiple radiocarbon dates um, to see if we can confirm that date of 2850. i'm pretty sure about that it makes sense but of course it would be nice to have multiple dates
3: Yeah, it's always good to have.
0: Ultimately, ultimately. I mean, the the ultimate goal here, Sarah, is Mm -hmm. that when I was an undergrad, and I th- maybe I mentioned that before this before in the podcast. When I was an undergrad, I worked um, for a, a professor, an uh, archaeologist, Phil Weigand. Great guy, an amazing archaeologist. And Phil was Phil for years collected turquoise. So his thing was turquoise, and he collected raw turquoise from mines scattered throughout the American Southwest. And he had access to turquoise artifacts from Mexico. Now there are no turquoise sources in West Mexico where he was finding these things. So his hypothesis was that that there was trade between the the native people of Mexico and the people who are in now the what we the states of um, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, and I think California. And that's really cool to think of trade that far that long ago over across hundreds of miles. And the way that Wygand was testing that was through trace element chemistry. So he would get the signatures of the chemical makeup, the chemical fingerprint of the raw turquoise he was collecting in various places in the American in American Southwest and comparing that fingerprint, that chemical fingerprint in that turquoise and those sources to the actual artifacts in Mexico. And nice. he did this amazing job of actually connecting the sources and the artifacts and showing, yep, absolutely, there was trade. Um, this trace element analysis, it was neutron activation analysis. We did it at at uh, Brookhaven National Labs. It's in a research reactor. That kind of study has been done on turquoise and also on obsidian, um, and it's a great way to trace obsidian even to individual volcanoes. So you find obsidian at a wow. site, and you go, well, where did that obsidian come from? It's chemical signature. It doesn't look any different from any other piece of obsidian anywhere in the world, but its chemical signature shows it came from this region, this volcanic region. So that's pretty cool. What I'm hoping is that soapstone will be um, similarly cooperative, so that l- someday we'll be able to pick up a soapstone bowl on the north shore of Long Island, where there I don't believe there's any soapstone source there, but there are soapstone bowls prehistorically, and to be able to say the source of that soapstone was Northwestern Connecticut because it's chemical signature matches precisely enough that we can trace it to that location. That would be cool.
3: Well, there is a grad school, there is a grad school project. Yeah, oh, for
0: some I, you lucky, know, lucky, lucky PhD. Hey, listen, I, I have, I, 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 I mentioned that to students all the time. So when you go to graduate school, take some chemistry classes, and let's see if we can if we can do what people have done for turquoise and obsidian. Uh, can we do the same thing for steatite? Soap soapstone is also ste- steatite. is just the, the more technical ner- um, term for it. And it's like I don't know if it's even possible, or maybe soapstone is just so heterogeneous in terms of its trace elements that you can't. It's not you can't get a firm enough. Grasp on the chemical signature, or it varies so much that you won't be able to do it. But it's certainly worth a shot. You
3: never know till you try. That's true. Exactly. So, So if you're listening to the podcast and you're a graduate student and you're looking for a project, there you go. Yeah, there
0: can just help you. There actually, there have been. I've been looking recently. There have been a number of articles over the last few decades on folks attempting to not in Connecticut, not in southern New England, but elsewhere attempting to to Connect soapstone sources and soapstone artifacts. So other I, I this is not my idea, man. People have, have talked about this previously and it's uh and have made the effort. So we're we're, we're we got our fingers crossed that it'll work. Well, there you yeah.
3: go. Okay, so we're gonna take a real quick break and when we come back, we are going to discuss some recent news that might have something to do with mummies. Uh oh.
1: We're here with Jordan Harbinger from the Art of Charm training and podcast. So Jordan, what are a few big ideas or concepts that you've learned from interviewing some of the amazing people you've had on the podcast over the last few years?
4: It's funny, you know, it's really informed my opinion of how business works. And it's great because I've gotten the same insight that I seek to provide for the audience in terms of what makes successful people great at what they do. So I have been able to talk to people that I otherwise wouldn't have had access to. And I've learned things like, not not only is it all about who you know and not what you know, but that's actually a good thing because once you get good at creating and building relationships, which is obviously what we teach on the show for for business reasons, the sky's the limit because you're no longer you don't have to be the smartest guy in the office. You don't have to sleep on your desk putting in hours. You don't have to do FaceTime. Uh, to make sure people know you're working, it's about the relationships that pull you forward. So you end up getting pulled upward instead of fighting your way upward through the crowd of, you know, other people at your level. Uh, and I found that every every, I found that every single business that I know of, essentially that's in person that's successful, has had that experience and intentionally cultivates it. So that's really changed the way that I look at work. It's changed the way that I look at business. And it's really given me the idea that, the, and what, what has brought out of Charm to this level, which is focus on relationships as well as building your platform, building your skill set, learning, because one in the absence of the other will not get you there. And uh, I have that on good authority because of the people that I'm able to talk to on the show.
1: You know, that's uh, that's. I'm glad you said that because people like to think that in archaeology, in our field especially, we're isolated against other fields and we're different. But you said exactly what gets people jobs and gets them moving up the chain is building relationships and building your skill set at the same time. And that's just, this is such a small field. I'm working with a few guys right now that we've worked on the same projects across the country, but never met each other. And we know a lot of the same people. And it's just an incredibly small thing. And building those relationships really helps.
4: Exactly. I mean, if if I know that you're a skilled archaeologist and I know that Mike is a skilled archaeologist why wouldn't i hire the person i like the most mm-hmm. i mean i would. and even if it's like oh well you know chris sometimes his work is late i mean, obviously this is hypothetical <laughs> i don't know what work you would turn in but sometimes it's late well oh yeah but you know i know he's a good guy he shows up on time he's pleasant to work with so if he's a couple days late with something there's probably a good reason all right hire him right but if it's like oh, well, this guy, he turns the stuff in late and this other guy, all other things being equal, I haven't heard anything about him. Well, then you lose, right? Uh-huh. So it always pays. It. There's no scenario in which having a relationship with somebody hurts you. There's only a scenario in which you not having that relationship hurts you. And there are plenty of scenarios, as, as I just mentioned before, where it all where it helps. And I've only seen that help. So all other things being equal, it's, it's one of the most important determining factors in success. So it seems, if you don't think it's important, you're just oblivious to the secret game being played around you. It's not that it doesn't exist, it's just that you're the guy who doesn't get it.
1: Right, awesome. Well, if you wanna learn how to build your relationship skills and learn some of these things that we've just talked about, check out the Art of Charm wherever you download podcasts and over at www.artofcharm.com.
3: Okay, so we're back. And so Ken, have you been following the news at all?
0: Oh, I, I avoid the news at all costs. Um, who's the, pres- <laughs> is, is it president? Was it Reagan president? I can't remember.
3: Oh my god. So, okay. Funny story about President Reagan. Like, Uh I'm old enough that I remember President Reagan, like being president, if that doesn't date me. Oh my god.
0: I remember President Lincoln, so what the hell are you talking about?
3: (laughs) I'm just saying. I was just like, I forget that, like, there was President Reagan occurred in my lifetime. Anyway, um,. So so you're not following the news so you don't know the newest exciting
0: discovery in
3: the midwest. Just, I just
0: I have this vague notion that somebody has found a mummy but I don't know very much about it.
3: Okay so what I love so much about this story is a they find this damn mummy in Indiana for a freaking week two weeks after I move away. <laughs> and I'm like Really? It, you guys go – I move away and you all go find a damn mummy.
0: They were waiting, like, yeah. were waiting to announce it until you left the state.
3: I know, right? Sarah
0: has left um, the building. OK, it's we're safe to announce the discovery of the mummy.
3: The discovery of the mummy. So am I, uh, the other thing that I'm really enjoying about this story is for some unknown reason, they are using images of Egyptian mummies – when they tell this story online here's so it's giving people the impression that an egyptian style mummy has been found in the midwest which is entirely false
0: sarah when you mentioned this to me i went online and the only picture i saw was of a mummy wrapped in linen and i'm thinking wow yes. that's really interesting for indiana yes. but you're telling me that's that's not the mummy huh
3: no, uh, there's two images that are going about. One of them is a stock image. I don't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. The other one is uh, an actual cataloged image um, from, I think, the the big museum over in England. Um, and I'm not positive they're using that image uh-huh. with permission or not. So,
4: so
0: even I was convinced. You said there was a mummy in Indiana, and I looked at that and I said, how, how did they? Was this an Egyptian mummy that was in somebody's collection and they lost it someplace? And now they're.
3: Well, 50%? you know, yeah, that could be completely. You know, that that's a, a really good way for us to come across a mummy in Indiana. <laughs> uh, but no, the story is actually pretty typical of Indiana. Uh, it was an accidental discovery that came about during the construction of a quarry site um, that was being surveyed because this is what must be done as to section 106. And so. they did apparently come across some human remains. Um, Now, I have have scoured the internet looking for details, and I have tried desperately to pump my ex-coworkers for information on this, and of course they won't share because I don't work there anymore. Mm -hmm. But from what I can figure out, um, now, see, I thought... A mummy in Indiana, it's going to be more like a bog mummy, like the mummies they find um, in Ireland and around the boggy areas.
0: Right, in Denmark, Uh, the bog bog people from Denmark.
3: Denmark, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking it was going to be more like a a bog mummy because it gets a little swampy around Indiana, especially southern Indiana. And up in the north where the lakes are, which is where this guy was found or this individual was found. I don't even know if it has a gender. It's just human remains at this point. Right. But apparently, according to my friends, that there's actually nothing remarkable about this. It's just an accidental discovery of human remains, which occurs more frequently than we would care for, right. but, you know, it happens. It, you can't always find everything. And the stories that are online, one of the things aside from the images of, of Egyptian mummies being used they keep saying that they've got this this mummy that may or may not be either 500 or 2000 years old <laughs> and i'm like that's that's quite an age right, range right yeah So I'm going through these articles, I'm going through these articles, and I'm trying to figure out where they're getting these dates from. And the only thing I can find is that they have conferred with uh, Dr. Stephen Naraki out of the University of Indiana. And he is a a physical anthropologist, a forensic anthropologist, and he works in the tri-state area. So he's familiar with finding human remains, both modern and ancient. And he has said that the... Remains predate the 1940s, which is the cutoff date for, um, well, for homicide, I guess, in the state of Indiana. Yeah, so, go. if you find a dead body and it's older than the 1940s, it's it doesn't go to the police anymore. It goes to the museum right. or
0: the schools. right, right, of course.
3: So the DNR has come and they have collected the remains and they have hidden them away where they hide their human remains. And I'm not going to tell people where that is, um, but. No one has has come out and said, so-and-so, this authority has given us this date range of 500 to 2,000 years. So I'm guessing people are just throwing numbers out there and hoping one of them sticks. Mm-hmm. So this is another one of those great stories that the media gets a hold of and just completely blows out of
0: proportion.
3: Right.
0: And it's, it's one of those things that, that unfortunately for a lot of folks who hear the word mummy – um they think that that necessarily implies something out of egypt that the egyptians yeah. are the, the well they're the ones who made mummies and so if you say there's a mummy in indiana it doesn't help that we're using stock images of egyptian mummies that in a lot right. of people's minds it's going to be wow how did the egyptians get to indiana and just understand exactly. that a, a mummy merely means that the, uh, the body has desiccated and and a, and some of the the soft parts have preserved and not been eaten away by bacteria. And that that kind of that the the Egyptians probably developed their own mummification process by being aware of the fact that in the dry desert of Egypt, it happened naturally. So it was wow, if bodies could be preserved, let's do it one better. Let's actually study how bodies preserve and do a better job of it. And that's what the Egyptians right. did. But there are multiple places in the world where where, um bodies have been found that have been mummified by natural natural means. the probably the best known are these these high altitude mummies found in South America. And we know something about that process where the Inca took usually it was children, I believe, um who were were taken from their families were, were treated actually very nicely in the sense that they, based on the the chemical analysis of their bodies, they were eating better than common people. Um, They were treated as if they were, um, you know, very important spiritual beings. And then ultimately they were drugged with coca, um, with alcohol, um, and they were brought way up into the mountains and they were laid down and allowed to die in this very, very cold, high altitude um, kind of crypts. And because of the high altitude, because of the cold, because of the lack of flesh you know, bacteria that would eat the flesh, um, those bodies have preserved and are amazing to see. Um, there's one, the the maiden of she's called the the, the maiden, um, the, the the ice maiden or something like that, um, and. Her body is very, very well preserved. I mean, it's kind of, it's a horror show pre- preservation. I mean, she, is, she looks like something out of a bad movie, but her nose, her hair, some of her skin has preserved. And she was, I think, like 13, 14, 15 years old when she died. But so she is a mummy. The Inca did not intentionally mummify her. They just brought her to brought her to a place that when she died her body naturally dried out and was uh, and was not didn't didn't decay to nothing but bone
3: right no and, and it happens uh in the American west uh, especially in the hotter parts right. where it's not so humid um just the, the whether intentional or not I know that there are human remains that have been discovered that are basically mummified um and well with the bog people the 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 bog process basically like you said it keeps the the flesh-eating bacteria away the bog people are kind of really creepy because they they can look pretty fresh yeah um aside from the fact that they turn black yeah. in color um but they're
0: very detailed and you can see fingerprints are- and creases yeah. on faces oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah and yeah. in fact the, remember the iceman from um um, Otzi, yeah, Otsy, right. I mean, in a sense, he mummified by being kind of quick frozen. Quick, he was, you know, was he was like freeze dried. And in his Basically, case, yeah. you could they 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 did they could perform an autopsy on him. They figured out what killed him. He had they they saw that he had tattoos on his body. So the preservation was was amazing in that case. But again, that was entirely accidental. Another another issue, of course, to, another point that we really should make is if this body um, is a native American. There are native Americans who I am sure are, are going to want to make sure that this body is treated with enormous respect. And perhaps because of the native American graves protection act, uh, repatriation act that they're going to want to, um, to, uh, put this body back in the ground. So we, we have to I think that that it's it's all well and good to be really curious about what this you know this who this mummy was and to learn as much as we can about it. But there's also an issue of the ethics of, of, of parading this thing around um, without considering the the, the, um, the spiritual requirements of the Native Americans who are the descendants of that person, especially if this, if this is a 500 year old mummy, um, oh, yeah. This is somebody's great, 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 however many greats yeah, grandparents. Yeah, that, that's
3: somebody that can totally be traced back to a surviving
0: You would think, a, right, absolutely. America
3: was, America had quite a few tribes, or America, Indiana had quite a few tribes in it at one point. I mean, they'll probably, the problem that they're occurring, that they're having right now is they need to, and of course they brought in an archaeology team to continue investigating the site, Um. But they, they need to determine uh, if this is a, a one off, you know, right. somebody fell over and died, sure. or if this is an actual uh, sacred site or a burial site. Because if it is, uh, if it is the latter, then uh, they're going to have to close the quarry, which I find intriguing because I know that this particular quarry was controversial to begin is that with. Right? <clears throat> So it's it's interesting that I mean if this does turn out to be a burial site, like an an active graveyard of sorts, um, how come they didn't pick it up on the initial survey?
0: Yes, Uh, Uh
3: but you know they found it now, Uh so that's good, I guess. um, Before they started, you know, digging it up to build roads and other crazy crap that they want to do out there.
0: But you know, following Uh, the theme of, of of most of our podcasts, the thing to remember here, folks, is let's wait until. Um, there's a more complete and thorough and inclusive discussion right. of what exactly has been found. But please, just merely by using the word mummy doesn't mean it has anything to do with Egypt. And I think shame on any media outlets that kind of automatically just include a photograph of an Egyptian yeah. mummy with litmus. That's
3: the thing that's killing me is all – because there's there's two images that I'm seeing the most of, and it's just these two – they're, they're obviously Egyptian mummies, but they're under this, these screaming headlines of mummy found in the Midwest and mummy found in Indiana. And it's, it's like this is not – you can't do that. People will associate the picture with the words that you're using. I mean Ancient Aliens does this all the time. Here's a random image. Backed up by somebody saying something, therefore they must be referring to this yeah. image because it's what we're yeah. showing
0: you. The only articles I found there were really, really, very brief, very succinct. They're all very brief. and, yes. and I and, and I read the fake. articles to say, well, wait a minute, is that what they're talking about? Because that's the picture. I, I was looking for some disclaimer like, well, that's not an actual picture of the mummy found in Indiana. That's an Egyptian mummy. But there's nothing yeah. like that. And no. to be honest with you, because I'm not enormously familiar with the archaeology of Indiana I'm looking at that going wow was there a time in Indiana when natives mummified their their yep. deceased by wrapping them in linen and I thought that can't be true but I figured something I figured something fishy was going on and that's that's kind of that's really sloppy and that's shoddy journalism I'm sorry to just automatically take an Egyptian mummy yeah that's good enough it's a mummy Mum, you know one mummy looks like another mummy and that just shows Bye. ignorance it
3: it, it, is, it it is ignorance, and I think on some level it is unethical as a journalist to do something like that. A, you're not giving credit to whoever's picture that is, right. which is a big no-no, uh, and, and B, you are either unconsciously being misleading or purposefully being misleading. Right. By not disclaiming that the picture has nothing to do with it. And, I mean, you shouldn't be using the picture there anyway. <laughs> you don't know what the damn thing looks like. I mean, and from what I have picked up from my coworkers, it's, there's nothing abnormal about the uh, remains that were recovered. This This happens more frequently than we then the general public is aware sure. mainly because when it does happen they bring out a forensic archaeologist the 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 doctor whoever looks at it says it's modern it's not modern if it's modern it goes to the police department and gets investigated and if it's not modern, it goes to the universities and to the state to decide who this person belongs to, mm-hmm. and then that person's given back to whoever they belong to. Right. It's it's very rare to run into situations like the Kennewick man, um, where we can't trace remains back to a reasonable reasonably trace remains back to right. the living peoples. Um, the Kennewick man is a whole other can of worms, right? And apparently is not done being a can of. Well, worms.
0: but I think it's pretty cool that that recent they finally were able to conduct DNA analysis on Kennewick, and surprise, surprise, he's Native American ancestor. Right. Yeah. Can't say I mean, what tribe it was, but he's he's not he's not a, he's not a, a, a Viking, and he's not a Samoan, and he's not a white guy, Caucasian. Right. Caucasian. he's not Caucasian. He's, right, <laughs> not, he's, not Caucasoid. he's an American Indian.
3: Yeah, and, and the problem with Kennewick Man is he's just too old to associate with a, a, a modern living tribe. Right. So, you know, that that's the problem with him. This is apparently, if the date ranges that they are giving in these stories can be backed up by someone who actually understands what they're talking about, 5,000 to 2,000, or 500 to 2,000 years is not, you can still... Find the home for that person.
1: Oh,
0: more than more than likely, one would hope. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, two thousand years is not so far in the past that we don't know who was in the area. So we might have marched them out west, but they they belong. They were in the area right, at that time. You go. <laughs> so um, let's go ahead and take our second break of the show. And when we come back, we're going to discuss an actual controversy in archaeology that is also used with the fringe groups. The Archaeology in Ale podcast presents a monthly series of lectures on all aspects of archaeology. These lectures are part of the Archaeology in the City program, hosted by the University of Sheffield in England, and are held at the Red Deer Pub near the end of the month. The podcast can be heard a few days later. Check out The Red Deer if you're in the area, or find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, so we're back from our break, and Ken, you've been in the field a while. Uh And you're you're more academic than I am because you work at a at a
0: university. At a
3: college. Yeah, you work at a university. I work I work out in the field digging holes for people who pay me
0: money. There more. you go, digging um, for dollars.
3: You, yes, good one. Digging for dollars. I'm gonna name my book. <laughs> um, <laughs> are you aware of the infamous Clovis First debate?
0: Oh yeah, of course, of course. I mean, anybody who's who's if you've taken a, a course in North American prehistory undergraduate and especially graduate you you know you've heard of this stuff and as somebody who's been around for a while right I mean I was I was an undergraduate and hearing about some of this stuff back in the um what is it the 69 through the early 70s and then in in graduate school and now and having taught for over 35 years, you know, I've seen the ebb and flow and all of this stuff. What's, I think the, the thing that's the most curious, for those not familiar, the whole idea here is that that for a, for a while, the, there was a consensus among archaeologists working in North America that the oldest sites dated back to maybe around 12,000 years ago. And they reflected a particular... Um, Stone tool technology called Clovis, after a site in New Mexico where it was at least first defined and recognized. Fluted points. These are the points that have channels on either face of them. They're large, they're leaf shaped, and they are associated, when they are found um, in association with animal bones, often those bones are of extinct forms of elephants um, that lived in North America at the end of the, the Pleistocene, the end of the Ice Age. And that there was very
3: distinct points too. When you see a Clovis point, you know you've
0: seen absolutely, absolutely. They're they're very, very distinct, and they're beautiful. And this fluting, this technology of thinning the the bottom of it by by removing these large channel flakes, flutes. The fluted in fluted point is like a fluted column. You know these Greek columns that have these these kind of concave. things, that, things, these concavities that go from the bottom to the top and there are m- multiple in the, the fluted points, that's kind of, that's what the fluted means. In any event,
3: the lines, yay, Yeah,
0: um, they're not found anywhere else in the world. You don't find them in Africa or in Europe or in Asia or in Australia. You only find them in the New World. F- earliest in North America, you also find them um, to some extent in South America as well. And you have to actually understand the Clovis controversy. You always have to go further back, which is that before those fluted points were found, the general consensus was, and by, by general consensus, I mean the the, the edict set, set down from on high by a physical anthropologist, whose last name is Erdlischka. He's the man whose parents couldn't afford vowels in his name. He has like, he doesn't have nearly enough vowels. And Erdlischka was a brilliant scientist. He was one of the, I think, the first director of the Smiths. He was an early director of the Smithsonian before it was even called the Smithsonian. Um, and I believe he taught at Harvard. And Erdliska kind of had a reputation of being—he was a brilliant guy. And he was the first, I think he was. He was also an um, the editor of the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. And people were frightened of him. He was very strong. Had very strong opinions. <laughs> that Erdliska, from a perspective, from his perspective as a physical anthropologist, looked at Native Americans, living Native Americans, and looked at the oldest skeletons found in the New World of Native Americans, looked at the the um, the biology of people in East Asia, and what Erd- Erdliska said was, yeah, absolutely, American Indians are transplanted Asians, but they are, the American Indians today, are morphologically so similar to the skeletons that are being found and so similar to the folks back in Asia that the, 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 the distinction, the break between the Asians on in Northeast Asia and the Asians in the transplanted Asians in America couldn't have been much more than like 3000 years. So uh-huh. there were archaeologists saying, but you know, er- Professor Erdliska, we're finding old things that we think are older. And remember, there's no radiocarbon dating when Erdliska, right. this is the beginning of the, the early part of the 20th century. Um, and Erdliska, ha- he kind of ruled with an iron fist. But Erdliska wasn't a bad guy. He was a skeptic, which is what everybody in science is. We are skeptics. It's show us, prove what you got. And in fact... Right. There were those who who, who talked to Erdliska and said we, I, we think we have something older than that. We think we have we have d- sites that date back to the tail end of the Ice Age or the er- the early post Pleistocene. And Erdliska said, "I don't think you're right." Erdliska said, "I I think that, that that it's a fool's errand." But if you want to prove that, you have to prove a firm association between the. Um, the artifacts made by these folks and geological evidence of a late Pleistocene or early post-Pleistocene context. And that's exactly what happened in the 1930s when they found not Clovis points initially, but Folsom points, which are in the same general style of Clovis, except they tend to be shorter, and the flute, the channel, instead of going a third to a halfway up – the flutes go all the way up, almost all the way up to the top. Um, yeah. The flutes are probably used for the half. It makes it easier to half those onto wooden shafts. Well, in the 1930s, they found um, cl- these Folsom points, this v- variant of Clovis, actually embedded in the bones, in the rib cage of a kind of bison that uh, the, the, the zoologists, paleontologists absolutely knew had been extinct since the end of the Pleistocene when that was found clear evidence human beings were hunting these critters these critters died off 10,000 years ago we've got we've got people that far back um yeah. and i'm not sure that erlisco was really happy with that discovery but you know that kind of evidence allayed everyone's fears that they were uh, going in the wrong direction and it there, it was right to be skeptical until that was found now since that time since the 30s the the Clovis and Folsom cultures have been found all over the United States. There are Clovis points found in every state of the of the of the United States. Found in Canada. Found in Mexico. Found um, to some extent in South America as well. And archaeologists thought, you know, we've got it. We've got it down now. People walked over the Bering Land Bridge at the end of the Pleistocene. The last big, um, uh, the last major. Glacial advance, sea level was lower, and a, a land connection between Northeast Asia and Northwest America was there, a highway across which animals walked and people followed them. And then they entered into the new world at that point. So when they did the geology, they did the the, the glaciology, they looked at the archaeology, they said, look, people can't have been here much before 12,000 years ago, and that was that was kind of the line. That was Clovis was here, Clovis was here first. There has, for a long time, been an undercurrent of, well, but maybe there are some sites that are older than Clovis, because stuff would come up now. Uh, Clovis was here, for sure. They certainly were the first broadly successful um, uh, culture. They were the the first widespread inhabitants of the new world. But there's always been this sort of this, this the, you know, the 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 consensus was there, but there were people who questioned the consensus, which is again the way science has to work. And, right.
3: and there's there's been a, several sites. There were there were three up until recently that were attributed to an earlier peoples, a pre Clovis people. And I just got done reading a, a paper that was published in 2012 about a site out in a cave site out in Oregon where they found corpolites that they were actually able to date. Right.
0: I think that's, and, that's, and, it's Paisley. They're the Paisley caves and yes. on your knees cave. But even back in the, I think it was the 1980s, you've got, um, James out of Osio who excavated the Meadowcroft rock shelter, which is in Western Pennsylvania. It's yeah. so Western in Pennsylvania. It ought to be in Ohio. You know, it's that close to the <laughs> Ohio border. And that's, a. um, a rock shelter site. Actually, that's open to the public as a, it's a museum, and you can see it was. It's left in the original. The original stratigraphy is still visible, and that um, Atavazio did an amazing job. I mean, just remarkable in terms of maintaining stratigraphic um, security, at, at, and the artifacts are firmly placed in that stratigraphic sequence, and the radiocarbon dates. Which some question, because well, it's coal country, maybe coal contaminated the groundwater. but it yeah. does it just doesn't seem possible because all the other there are this is a deep stratigraphic sequence, and all of the artifacts found above the stuff at the very bottom also are affiliated with radiocarbon dates, and the radiocarbon dates are are correct. In other words, yeah, that's the right style. That's the right date for that style. And he's got stuff at the bottom that is, I think, pretty close to fourteen thousand years old. So that was a good day. And then you had um, Monte Verde in Chile, Um, Mm -hmm. Tom Dillahay excavated that site again, it's, I think that's the 1990s. And again, you've got that now you guys, here's a site about as far removed from the Bering land bridge entry point as you can imagine. And he's got dates of 13,000. Well, if people are in South America 13,000 years ago and it's pretty firmly dated, then oh my God, they must have, if they entered in through Beringia, it's got to be a couple of thousand years before that. Um, right. Mike Waters has this amazing site, the Deborah Friedkin site in Texas, and really firm, uh, I think they're optically stimulated luminescence states, perfect artifacts, and his, yeah. his dates are 15,500. There's the Manus site which is in Washington state, they've got a, a, a mammoth, a mammoth skeleton, and there is a bone spear point in one of the vertebra of that skeleton. This animal was hunted by people, and the radiocarbon dates on the bones of that skeleton is just shy of 14,000 years ago. So,
3: Well, see, and that could explain why that we don't find as many uh, pre-Clovis tools is you know they're using disposal or uh, degradable materials like bone yeah i mean finding that preserved
0: is it's amazing yeah. you know
3: yeah that's pretty good it, that does not happen yeah.
0: frequently I, you know and here's the deal i think that that maybe what we're talking about here is yeah there's a thinly dispersed human population in the new world Let's say sometime after 20, about twenty thousand years ago, and that kind of matches what we see—that the Beringia, the, the land bridge was open, people could walk into Alaska. They're kind of stuck there for a few thousand years until the, the large glaciers, the Cordilleran glacier that's centered in the Rockies, the Laurentian glacier that's centered in the um, in um, west in central Canada, those things start melting off, and now there's this corridor, this ice-free. Uh, pathway that people could enter into the rest of the new world through there
3: and i know i know because unfortunately because of global warming or global climate change which isn't real apparently um but it is affecting the archaeology in alaska and i know that they're finding really cool stuff stuff is
0: melting literally melting out of glaciers Yeah.
3: yeah 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 it's it's the permafrost is going away and as it's going away i mean sites and amazing yeah. artifacts and all kinds of cool stuff are popping up in right. alaska which is great for us and <laughs> it sucks and, for the rest of the world but
0: great for yeah, us but the deal here is that what's what's happening in archaeology is exactly what's supposed to happen in science and i know that that some of these arguments got really personal and i think it was i think it's autovazia who started talking about the clovis mafia if I if it's if it wasn't his phrase, I apologize. But but I've heard that phrase bandied about that the Clovis Mafia had this stranglehold on science and they wouldn't listen to anybody else. But at this point, you know that that you know scientists are supposed to be skeptical about new ideas about new hypotheses. And
3: well, you know, you're mentioning how you were being taught about other cultures that predate or date at the same time as Clovis. I was never taught that when I was in right? school. Yeah. I, they never told me that there was anything before Clovis. We were just taught that Clovis was first and that was that. Well, what a, so yeah. it, it wasn't until after I graduated and started dealing with, you know, other people who had gone to other schools that I was like, oh, what is this other thing that was not Clovis? I don't understand. So, yeah, I mean – there are still people who will not acknowledge a pre-Clovis culture in America.
0: But C. Vance Haynes, who is a uh, geologist, but who's worked a lot with archaeologists, I mean, he kind of he laid out. He said, "Look," and again, he was, in, in, he wasn't quite the Erdlischka of 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 the more recent time because he personality wise, there's no comparison. But he laid out. He said, "Look." I, he, he presented himself as very skeptical about pre-Clovis stuff. But he said, this, here's, here's five five or six or ten things. If you satisfy this, then me and everybody else will say, good for you. You've proven the point. And I think that right. Hay- Haynes was one of these guys who was brought down to Monte Verde, looked around and said, you know what? He's got a site that's about 13,000 years old here. And clearly that implies a pre-Clovis presence further north. Um, And that's that's the way science works. Right now, I think the consensus view is that you probably have that you have the consensus view is you have sites in North America that are probably at least 15,000 years old. And that implies an entry into Alaska probably a few thousand years before that.
3: Right.
0: Yeah. To give them time to. to Are there still holdouts saying, oh, it's Clovis first? Well, sure. But that's okay. That's the way science works. It's fine.
3: And th- and there will always be people who do that. Now, the reason that this controversy is important to the theme of our podcast, the, the whole archaeological fantasies thing, is not because this is an actual controversy that occurs in archaeology and is a legitimate controversy. It's because since there are people that don't understand what the actual controversy is, which we have discussed, they think... That we as archaeologists are refusing or are doctoring our findings to say that Clovis is the first culture in America, because we're trying to hide more sophisticated or more advanced technologies of people that existed before the Clovis people in America.
0: And the the thing that's funny about that, of course, is that the pre-Clovis sites, generally speaking, have very simple stone tool technologies. And in fact, that's one of the ironies is the reason in many cases these sites have been questioned by more traditionally oriented archaeologists is because it, it's sometimes not that, that easy to distinguish these pre-closed artifacts from things that nature does because they're that simple in the sense that um, they don't take a whole bunch of coordinated steps to produce those artifacts. You see a Clovis point, nobody's going to look at a Clovis point and say, well, maybe nature could have made that. No, no, no.
3: But Clovis points
0: are very distinct. But some of these like pre-Clovis, very yeah. but some of the pre-Clovis artifacts that have been presented, it's like, well, you know what? If you have pebbles smashing against each other in a stream, you'll get things like that. So, yeah. and, and I think.
3: But if, like you were saying, they're making their tools out of wood, out of uh, bone and, possibly would maybe shell right. i mean You're not, it, those things are going to degrade before you can find them yeah
0: but the, the deal here, the deal places. with 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 how how this has played out is the is the kind of thing that no matter what archaeologists do the fringe people are going to attack us so if we absolutely um hold fast to the clovis first perspective we are being closed-minded and we should not right. be listened to but if we say right. you know what these guys were right. the The French people will say, "See, the archaeologists were wrong about Clovis. They could be wrong about Atlantis too." It's that you know they laughed at Columbus. So, so why were people? Why do people laugh at me? So, no matter what, right. if we if we hold the party line, we are a bunch of of uh, of of doubting Thomases, and we have closed mind. But if we have an open mind and we change our opinions, then. Well, you see, archaeologists change their opinions all the time, so maybe they'll change their opinion about Atlantis or ancient astronauts. Archaeologists, like scientists, change their opinion when the data are forthcoming that show we were wrong, and we embrace that. That's great. Um,
3: And there's not been any evidence to date showing that there were Atlanteans or lizard people or aliens anywhere near america at any point let alone before 15,000 years show
0: ago show us the show us the money right show us the definitive proof and we do it, it's it is a canard it is a libel against us to say we have closed minds well, we have open minds but right. we realize the old saying that you know it's good to have an open mind but you have to remember when you have an open mind people are going to throw a lot of garbage into it and we need a filter we need a way of filtering out the garbage and when we're wrong, we don't just admit it grudgingly. We embrace it. It's fantastic. A new way of looking at, at the past. We love that. But the bar is pretty high. And yeah. you can't complain about the bar. You can't complain about there being the bar in the first place. Because if you complain about it, then you're not doing archaeology. You're not doing science. You're doing something else.
3: Yeah. So that's why I wanted to bring up the Clovis first debate. I I wanted people who are interested in the actual debate to hear both sides of it and to to know where the debate is. And it's it's not really a debate anymore. I mean, everybody's... Most people who I talk to about this are pretty accepting of there being a pre-Clovis yeah,
0: the people the consensus has shifted and that's it and yes. it has shifted not because of you know style or personality it shifted because no, the data because of, because of evidence exactly yeah
3: yeah, yeah. i mean and, and that's that's what's like you said that's what's supposed to happen we have evidence that there are pre-clovis there are pre-clovis sites um there's no reason to deny that there were people here before the clovis
0: were yeah. I and mean, um, a general but, a general thing here it, when I was in graduate school and I took a course in human evolution I was taught that the oldest evidence for anatomically modern homo sapiens 40,000 years ago somewhere in Europe when I teach that course today I talk about 200,000 year old skeletons in southern Africa yeah. and that's all because over the course of the 35 years that I've been teaching the evidence has shown that well
3: when I was <laughs> going to school uh, we were taught that Neanderthal did not have language because there had never been a hyoid bone right. that had been recovered. And I want to say the year I graduated, or maybe it was the year after I graduated, they found a, a Neanderthal hyoid bone. There bomb. you go. So it, it's you know that completely changed everything, and now we're assigning, we're attributing you know religion and 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 burials and all kinds of things to the Neanderthal right. now because. We, we accept that they have language. If they had language they could very well have had culture, blah 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 blah. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, things change and things change quickly. You know, I mean it's just it just depends on the evidence that you find and how strong that evidence you is. And I mean Yeah that's, and, that's
0: the fun. That's the fun.
3: Yeah. And it it's interesting because like I said, I mean you teach something completely different than what you were taught. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what it's going to be for me, you know, in 10 years from now. I mean, I'm going to be telling people things that I was not taught, or I will be correcting people about right. things that I was taught that we now know are
0: yeah. not true. I caught myself, Sarah. I was almost going to say, you know, in archaeology, nothing's written in stone, but, uh, but it sort of is, <laughs> so never mind.
3: Except for some of those things yeah. that are actually yeah. written on yeah, stone. There you yeah, there go. Yeah. Teotihuacan or whatever.
0: All right. Okay, well. Great fun, Sarah. D-
3: yes, it was. And thank you very much. And uh, keep us updated on your uh, your site Absolutely. as you get more information on it.
2: Absolutely. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, 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 we don't do Thanks for listening.
3: We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by ArcheoSoup Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at fantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com slash fantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archie Fantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Fantasies. Thanks again for listening.
2: No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Rage your trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't
1: do dinosaurs. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at Chris at